Hello, Data everyone, and welcome to DataFem, where we engage you with stories of how innovators across the globe are using data to achieve new heights in their respective industries. I'm Danielle, founder of Decayo Data, and I'm really excited to tell you that this is already the ninth episode of DataFem. So I really want to thank everybody who's been with us on the journey this far. And a secret is that nine is my favorite number. So I had to make sure that this week's guest was extra special. And so I have with me my friend and total role model, Amar Nat. She's the data science manager at Econ One Research and a professor of data science at UCLA. So I think you'll really enjoy hearing from her. And with that, let's start our episode. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about who you are and your background? Uh, my name is Amar Nath. Uh, I'm an economist. I'm a managing director at Econ One Research, which is a small uh, economic research firm. Um, I am located in the Los Angeles office. Um, I have a PhD in economics. My area of focus was labor. Uh, but really, my love has always been applied empirical data analysis. I uh, have transitioned into the private sector and do mostly uh, financial modeling work for major airlines uh, and other corporate clients, doing predictive modeling and um, causal inference modeling. Uh, I am what I, I guess I am now what is called a data scientist, uh, but uh, I have found that the data science techniques heavily overlap with econometrics. It's, it's in a lot of ways the same toolbox deployed in different ways. That's interesting because I didn't know that, I didn't know about the airline connection. What What's kind of the general procedures that you do, like even specific, um, like econometric models, like how do you work with the airlines and support them in that way? So I actually do a lot of of work around loyalty programs. So it's not just airlines, although airlines are the biggest clients that I generally have. It's anybody whose loyalty program is a material piece of their revenue. Um, and it's really customer customer level modeling, right? Like it's, it's, we're modeling behavior among individuals and we're doing it to figure out how many points are going to be earned, how many will be redeemed and how many will expire. Uh, and that's required for booking their financials at year end. And so that's the most straightforward piece that we do. And you can really do any binary choice classifier for that. Um, Logit is, is the easiest for, ter for purposes of explaining to auditors how the model works. Uh, there is a trade-off between how good your model is and how easy it is to explain to the auditors who have to sign off on it. Um, and then from there, generally, my clients will start asking for some causal inference work. If we change our program in this way, what will happen? Um, what are the drivers of these particular outcomes? Uh, if we change our airline in this way, how will the user base that we consider loyalty members react to that? So we, we start generally with 
you know, the, the basic predictive modeling. And then we shift over to some causal inference modeling to help them do planning and decision making for, for future paths. Um, which is, I, I always really enjoy it. I, I think that the predictive model and, and running that brute force logic just really gives me a good feel for their data, for their user base, for their customers, for this segment. Um, it, you know, we segment the customers based on their behavior and certain characteristics that we know tend to be important in terms of how you earn and redeem. And then that helps me also then decide later on what types of models will be most useful for causal inference type work, whether that's, you know, failure models like Cox, hazard, hazard models, um, or other types of panel data. I do panel models very frequently. Um, panel plus on gets a lot of exercise in my, in my field. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's just, I think what I love is just that I feel like those in that initial round of we need to book our financials, so let's run these predictive models gives me a great feel for who is this client, who are their customers, how do I expect them to react to certain things? And then, you know, when I run the models, is that turning out the way I expect it to or not? And if not, why? What's happening here? That makes sense. Um, and you mentioned Logit. So, you know, when I, I mean, my basic understanding of Logit from school and from, you know, playing around is that it's all binaries. So like what type of dependent variables are you most seeing when you're working with these airlines? Yeah. So for the, again, for the purposes of booking the financials, really what we're trying to predict is how many points are going to expire. And the reason we're trying to figure that out is because uh, when the airline hands out a point, it's a liability on the books. When it redeems, it washes. But if it expires, that's revenue recognition in a later quarter because that's a liability that's no longer there. So they need to do some robust statistical modeling to help them understand when we're booking our financials, what is our expectations for, ex for expiration? And there are a bunch of rules that were put into place that require them to be more stringent than they use. I think they just used to mostly use historical averages. Um, but a bunch of regulations uh, went into place a couple of years ago that require them to be a little bit more stringent about how they're doing it. So they come to us and we, we run these models and, you know, expiration is a passive event. You're not choosing to expire. You're just not choosing to act to redeem. So what we actually predict is redemption. What is the probability that any given user will redeem their points? Uh, and then we back out expiration from there. Um, we say, you know, if, if you, if these points aren't going to be redeemed, they're going to expire. And there's other complicated, weird things that we do with the model. But the basic thing we're trying to figure out is, of these users, who's, who's likely to redeem their points? Um, and it, we, we see all sorts of fun things. Like um, my favorite are the points hoarders. <laughs> they resemble redeemers in every way. But what they're doing is they're hoarding to gain status or to keep status. So in, in the short term or in the near term, they never redeem but they show all of the hallmarks of Redeemer. So they're, they're always fun. They, they always mess with the models a little bit. Um, we see things like credit card holders. Credit card holders are so engaged with the brand that they almost always redeem. Um, mm -hmm. But we do see some credit card holders who earn and earn and earn and never take a flight. And I've always wondered about them. Like you have a co-branded credit card for this airline and you've never taken a flight that we can see. What are you doing? Uh, so it's, it's fun. We get to see some very interesting things in the data. So the other day when I was booking um, tickets for our studio, like the conference in San Francisco, I was coordinating with someone else. And so like I was 
you know, I, I booked my return flight first and I, it was an acceptable number of points. And then when I checked the flights there, it was like all too many points for what I had in my account. But then the next day it was back to 9,000 or whatever I could afford, you know? So it's, it's crazy to see how the points fluctuate just like dollars. I didn't actually know that. Um, and it's interesting because um, points that are issued by credit card, uh, co-branded credit cards are valued, well, used to be valued differently than points handed out by the airline because it's a different uh-huh. liability. But those, those co-branded credit card points were actually purchased by their co-branded credit card. So they have a fair market value, whereas the points being handed out by the airline, it's really just the marginal cost of an additional, of an additional passenger. Um, that's changed. They, they used, I believe, and I can't be 100% sure because I honestly stop paying attention once we get through my piece of the modeling, um, but I believe they use fair market value for all the points now. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it, the, the value fluctuates day to day. Um, but what you're also seeing is if, even if the point value isn't fluctuating, um, what you're seeing is dynamic price. Mm-hmm. Right. So they're actually seeing you make the return flight, given what they know about you as a user, they know that you originate in Louisiana, not in San Francisco. So you've made your return flight and haven't made your outbound flight. So automatically their pricing algorithm would theoretically increase that price for you. Um, and then the next, you know, if you're doing it close enough together, um, I mean, that's their, their goal is to price discriminate as, as perfectly as they can. Right. It could have been that, that you cleared your cookies and that it was that this algorithm was entirely linked to cookies in a browser. Um, it might, you know, I don't know if you put in your frequent flyer number, uh, but I don't, I don't know if they use uh, frequent flyer numbers for dynamic pricing algorithms right now. It depends on the client, of course. Some clients obviously will, um, but they're very careful about how they handle loyalty members, uh, and a lot of that is because you know, the, the value of the loyalty program is the customer base. So they're not going to do too much to alienate you. <laughs> yeah. What, well, my last question about the airlines is, I guess, what is the, like, what is the economic impact on the airline when somebody just towards their points or doesn't use it? Like, why, why is, like, a customer's point behavior so important that they're bringing on, like, you know, a hotshot like person like you to do all this modeling? Um, well, I mean, you have to look at the, the value of these programs. So they're, they're basically looking at constrained optimization, but they have directly conflicting sort of priorities in some ways. On one hand, they want to maximize expiration for these programs because that's revenue recognition in a later quarter, right? That's a liability that's washed. That's great for them. On the other hand, they really want to maximize engagement with these programs because the value of these programs is that customer base. Um, If I recall correctly, and my numbers might be slightly wrong, uh, several years ago when United signed their co-branding agreement with Barclay, the deal was worth about $10 billion, and their liabilities on the books were about $4 billion. Most of the value of that that co-branding agreement was United's name and their customer base. So every airline really has a lot of incentive to sort of build the, the brand value of, of that loyalty uh, program so that those co-branded agreements can be more lucrative for them. Um, and also because, you know, they, they want you, they do want loyalty. They want you to come back. So they're trying to make it worth your while. Um, 
But I think, you know, the, the straightforward answer is just with the new rules that went into place with ASC 606 and a, and a few other rules that went into place after um, certain entities sort of gamed the system by using that expiration revenue recognition to um, paint a rosier financial financial picture than maybe they actually had. And this was many, many years ago, and it was not an airline that did this. But as a result, um, the, uh, the IRS uh, got much more uh, strict about how you can account for these points, uh, and they require statistical modeling. So, and they require a third party to do it. So, they they more or less, as one of my clients this year said, we kind of have to come to you, regardless of whether or not we want to. But luckily, we like you. You're both very involved in academics, but also, you know, this corporate. How how does that interact? Like, how do the two inform each other? Because I know that they're very different worlds. I would say that teaching definitely makes you so much better uh, at client handling because at the end of the day, all of my clients are very, very, very intelligent people whose expertise is not statistical modeling. So they don't understand what I'm saying. It's because I am not explaining it correctly. And so I think having teaching and, and realizing that people have a, such a variety of ways to communicate really pushes me to think about alternative ways that I can explain things that I understand in a very specific way. Like we were just talking about how we, we understand Logit as, as binary choice models. And, um, you know, we, we both learn that math in a particular way and we understand it in a particular way, but that way might not be straightforward for someone else to, to really be able to grasp. And so I have to think about what are alternative ways to think about this and how can I explain this to someone who's not getting it the way that I get it? Because I think a lot, you know, because I, I, I'm building my business right now. I'm always looking for clients. I love doing data science for, for business optimization, but I am an economist. And so I'm, I'm constantly thinking about, you know, what is the role of an economist in the data science ecosystem? And the more I, I do it and the more projects I take and the more conferences I go to and the things I get involved with, the more I go, guys, just what we've always been doing at a larger scale and borrowing some of the statistical techniques that use that we just haven't really bothered with as much. Um, and so I, I think that we're seeing more and more economists who are in the data science world, um, especially, you know, and, and even in academia, we're seeing more and more economists who are sort of willing to play in that space and, and you know, understand that it's really a lot of the same work. Um, but I don't feel like economists have, have on the whole made that transition into going, oh yeah, we're data scientists too. Just like the statisticians, the statistics departments tend to be the ones that are pushing the sort of data science graduate type courses uh, and going, well, you know, data science, this is statistics. Um, but there's a place for economists too because causal insurance matters. And, and especially from a business perspective, you know, it's, it's one thing to know what the future is going to look like. It's another thing to be able to change the future. Um, and so that's where economists come in. You know, we're very good at understanding a market very quickly. We're very good at understanding industry drivers very quickly. And then we're very good at taking the data that we have available and building a model out of that to understand how we might change outcomes for our clients. Uh, but I think that, that on the whole, economists still see themselves as a very separate uh, entity. They, they hold themselves apart. But I will say, 
you know, when I was in grad school was just when the empirical economics revolution was really happening, when, when it really became respectable to be an empirical economist versus a theoretical economist. So, and I, I was not in grad school that long ago. And so that, that perspective has changed very rapidly over a very short amount of time. And so I, I definitely see us moving into the data science space more quickly um, over time. And there are some great economists who are already doing work in that space. Um, I want to circle back real quick. Just This is just something that came to my head. That's why. But um, is... Sure. The hospitality industry, like I would consider airlines, you know, hotels for sure, like anything that involves um, travel, like is that the main focus of, you know, somebody who's doing corporate economics in the way that you are? I would say that um, I happen to have a lot of clients in, in the airline and the hospitality industry in general. And that's generally because of word of mouth, right? They like my work. They, it's a small industry. They, they talk. And so I end up getting, you know, referred to others. Um, and I, so I would say that, that that's just coincidence. I'm actually trying to expand outside of that because customer segmentation and, and behavioral profiling, like the whole behavioral economic side of things, like it, it can really apply to anything. It could be retail. It could be um, any customer-facing industry could use my, my work to help them. And that's kind of an intersection um, with marketing a little bit. You know, a lot of the people that I've been talking to, especially when it comes to um, looking for like advertisers or, you know, anything that relates to entrepreneurship, I've been coming across a lot of um, marketing analysts do you work with marketers or do you like you know consider yourself in that space too so that's really interesting um that you bring up because if you think about a lot of like multi-level modeling marketers use that and they were kind of the first to try using those types of models um in their work and and you'll see i feel like in some of the old school marketers were some of the first to really start using statistical and econometric modeling in their work and um like I said, a lot of those multi-level models and stuff were were executed very early on in advertising, and I've always found that very interesting. Um, I think, yeah, marketing is very adjacent to what I what I do. It, you know, I happen to be doing work that tends to go towards sort of the financial picture, um, and I think that marketing focuses on slightly different outcomes and timelines. I I look a little bit more long term. They they tend to be a little bit more short short term in what they care about. Uh, but we use a lot of the same data. Like I the the loyalty databases are maintained by marketing, and that occasionally creates issues for us. Right? We we're, we're doing financial reporting, but the requirements for a marketing database and and their data cleanliness and integrity are not the same. Um, so we've had to have those discussions occasionally where we go, oh, hey, like, you know, we, you've got to have stricter controls or you need to be doing this or that um, because your data is not just being used for marketing anymore. It's being used for financial reporting and it's being used for financial planning. Uh, but it's always great to pull marketing into those conversations because they have such interesting insights and they look at the customer segmentation so differently than I do. Um, and it's, I, I think you're absolutely right. Marketing is very adjacent to what we do. Uh, and there's a lot of overlap in some cases, too. Financial modeling tends to be its own beast. I don't know if I completely understand why, because I look at the techniques and the models that they use, and I go, yeah, well, you could do that, too. Um, <laughs> Me too. But I, I, think, I think a lot of it just has 
to do with financial modeling is in a lot of ways much farther ahead than sort of modeling in general for corporate use, right? They've been doing quants on Wall Street have been sort of there and embedded for a very, very, very long time. And they have really, really high standards for, you know, quality assurance because it's financials. You really can't mess up. It's not a good idea. Um, so I think they tend to hold themselves apart and they, and they tend to be very entrenched. They can't try a lot of the new shiny techniques simply because they have such, such stringent sort of audit and control requirements. Um, whereas if you're just helping a business to optimize their own performance and, and reach performance outcomes or goals by using their data and modeling it and helping them understand better what's driving their business, you have a, there's, the stakes are high, but they're not quite like, you know, audit Sarbanes-Oxley going to prison for financial crimes high. Uh, we see that in actually in, in litigation modeling as well. I think that there's the movement over to open source has been very slow in litigation modeling for the same reason, right? It's, it's a very conservative industry. It's, um, you're working on these giant billion-dollar, multi-billion-dollar price-fixing or antitrust cases, and you, you want that security. And so SaaS is a big player in this industry. Um, and, you know, the rest of us, I think, rightly or wrongly, look at SaaS and we're like, oh, that's so old school. Um, but SaaS dominates litigation modeling. Just being able to process the data you have is becoming like something that's even pretty empowering for an individual. Like, you know, I don't, I just started this business, so I don't have a ton of data yet. But, you know, there's just so much that if I do, like, I'm starting to get data that I could kind of do a study on which types of people respond to me and start profiling them in the way that you profile, you know, your um, point hoarders and things like that, you know, and like really calculate the average number of Twitter followers that somebody who's going to want to strike a deal with me has and like how they behave and, you know, do all these things just on my personal computer. And that's just not something that existed before. I think it's really cool and it's empowering for people who like want to understand an aspect of their work, but like, you know, aren't corporate. Like, you know, we can still run these models because, you know, so much um, information exists that we can learn from. I know that you really make yourself available to, um, I guess, initiatives that do empower individuals, you know, to learn um, diverse individuals specifically. And I know that's something very important to you. So I was wondering if you could talk about that. I, I don't think that, you know, our best work is going to come out of a room of people who all have the same background and the same life experience. Um, and I, you know, as, as, a woman in the field, I, to some degree or another, recognize that the only way that we're going to get more women in this field and get more women at the top is for people like me to pull the, the generation behind us up, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's partially on us, you know, to make sure that we're encouraging, that we're mentoring, that we're helping, that we're, we're making those, those opportunities available and that we're giving back, you know, our own time and energy to try and make this field better. And I think that's a lot to ask. And I definitely 
definitely understand, um, you know, my colleagues who maybe feel like they don't have the time or the bandwidth for that, but I do. And so I try and make it a point to mentor young women, to mentor people of color or people from different backgrounds or experiences and, and encourage their growth because it, it's just the only way we're going to be able to model a world that reflects us is if the people who are building the models reflect the world that they're modeling. And I think that tunnel vision and, and sort of <clears throat> that lack of diversity has come back to to bite certain firms. And, and you know, you see things like, this is many years ago, and I'm sure they're much better now, but, you know, Target sending out uh, pregnancy uh, coupons to 16-year-old girls who haven't told their parents that they're pregnant yet. And it's like, yes, the the data science team was able to identify very accurately who was pregnant based on, you know, a variety of, of inputs. Um, but they didn't think about whether they were using that information well. And, you know, I think that, <clears throat> I think that to some degree or another, you know, my generation is the one that built social media in a lot of ways. And I think at the time, there was so much excitement about what we could do that we never asked whether we should do it. And I'm encouraged and heartened to see that data science is not taking that same out. I, I see us as being a bit more aware and, and one, you know, thinking about the fact that we can do a lot of things, but should we do them? And I think that, again, having more diversity in the, in the groups of people who are building these models only makes them better, only makes them stronger, but also, you know, helps us to stop and question, are we doing the right thing? Is this something we want to do? And I think, you know, what you say about, you know, a lot of your colleagues not having the time or bandwidth, that's, that's important because I think, you know, there still is kind of a balance that needs to be struck between like being the person, like you want, you want to walk into a room full of, you know, males, females, whatever you have and um, be able to just talk about your work and not mention diversity at all. I might not be the person to bring up diversity and have a whole conversation centered around that, but I do want to make myself available for when that happens. And I do want to um, like always be thinking about ways to just make barriers to entry for people who come from different backgrounds go away. And with that in mind, are there any other types of diversity that you would like to see represented in our industry? I'm an extrovert, and I recognize the world in a lot of ways is structured to reward my extroversion. Um, And so, you know, I also think about you can get people who are very diverse, sort of racially or gender-wise, but who are very uniform in the way that they think about things. Um, And so I, I try and think about diversity from like a variety of perspectives of, you know, diversity of, of background, diversity of circumstances, diversity of race, diversity of, of orientation, diversity of personal life, gender. You don't necessarily want that to be the first thing people think about you, right? You want them to think about you with respect to your work and how excellent your work is. And then have that be a facet of, of you and your personality and your work that you are also passionate about diversity and inclusion. Um, because I think that it's 
very easy to get sort of tagged as, you know, the feminist economist who's obsessed with diversity and inclusion. And it's more just, you know, like, yeah, I, I guess I am, but I'm an economist. I, my work is important. My work is good. I stand by the quality of my work. And, and, you know, I don't necessarily, like you said, I don't necessarily want to become the, the mascot for diversity and inclusion. I, but I want to do my part. I want to make sure that I'm actively encouraging the creation of the world and workplace and, and industry that I want to be in. If you're discriminated against for your personality or your lifestyle choice when your work is good, there's not much you can do about that, you know? And I've personally been very hurt by those um, biases and I don't want it to happen to anyone else. So I don't know how there can be systems in place to protect diversity of personality and, you know, make it's so that everybody is judged on their work. I I don't know how that would happen, but I think that's something that hopefully does because it would, you know, it would definitely improve a lot of toxic work environments. I think a lot of that is on the people on the top, creating, creating that atmosphere of collaboration and inclusion and, and, you know, yeah, I I think that's really on the people at the top. I, I mean, I, feel extraordinarily lucky to be at a firm where I think from the top down, from the CEO down, it is a firm that values collaboration. It it values, you know, speaking openly and but kindness when you are are sharing your opinions and your thoughts. Um, Obviously, we are very, we want to hire the best and we value very high quality work, but we're not going to do that at someone else's expense. Um, and I, you know, we happen to be, and I don't know if this is intentional, but we happen to be a very diverse workplace. You know, gender mix is pretty equal. Our CEO is female. Several of our managing directors, including me, are female. Um, but we also have a whole, whole bunch of people who are, you know, not American. So we have a whole bunch of people with different cultural backgrounds, different language backgrounds. Um, and I will say we, we sort of lean towards more of the quiet introvert because uh, we are economists at the end of the day. Um, but I would say there's a great mix of personalities too. And there's a lot of, of you know, I think people are very uh, generally tolerant of the fact that I am annoyingly cheerful and talkative. And on the other hand, no one takes it personally that some, uh, some people aren't super cheerful and, and will barely say five words to you. No one takes that personally. It's just, it, you know, everybody's different is sort of the attitude. And I think that I'm very lucky to be at a firm that's like that. And I'm happy that you are. Thank you so much for being on this podcast. It's always a pleasure to talk to you on WhatsApp, but real live voices are so much better. So I want to also thank the audience for listening. We are almost to our 10th episode, so that's a huge milestone. And I know that a lot of you have been supporting us lately. So if you want to support us in a bigger way, feel free to head over to our Patreon and sign up for some of the perks that will blow your mind. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash datafem. So very easy to remember. And stay tuned for the next episode.